Coming up on today's Compassion Radio. I was exposed to being different at a young age. In the honors courses, in the gifted and talented program, I was the only person that looked like me district-wide. It was in my fourth grade class. I was nominated for gifted and talented And my teacher, she didn't want for me to go to the program. She said, oh, I don't think this program is for you. Compassion Radio, telling the story of lives changed and changed lives changing the world. Thanks for joining us today. You know, one of the great strengths of America is its diversity. Now, we all agree with that statement on the face of it, but we also know it can be a real challenge to live out the promise of equality and unity. That's one of the big lessons of 2020. Frankly, we're never really going to experience the power of this principle if we just assume everyone else has the same experience that we do. So, are we really ready and willing to listen to the story of others? If we don't, they'll always remain other and we'll never really become we the people. As followers of Christ, it really needs to start with us. And the best place to start is with other followers of Christ whose story has real power to change our perspective. That story begins today. Stick with us, and I know you'll be challenged and inspired, maybe even a little shocked by what you hear. On Compassion Radio today, we're going to start a conversation with a long time in the making. We're sitting here with friends of ours that were dear to us at important, important chapters of our lives personally. And then you drift apart. That for us have been the Jacksons. Aaron and Stacy Jackson, welcome to Compassion Radio. Thank you, Brian. Yep, thank you. Glad to be here. We're going to ask you guys some tough questions today because it's important. Not just because we need to hear from you or get perspective, but because... We are way beyond the issue of just getting someone's opinion or someone's perspective. We are deep in the weeds now of what the church, the kingdom of God, is going to do at a time of crisis. How we're going to work together across every aisle imaginable, whether political, race, economic, cultural, in a way that brings a kingdom ethic to play here that's going to make a difference when the world needs it so badly. We've had a lot of conversations about these issues over the years. I've got a platform now, and Sandy's with me here often to talk about these things, and the Compassion Radio is our chance to talk about difficult things in a Christ-centered and a Christ-forward-looking missional way. That's what our program's about. So we're inviting you guys back into the circle. Because you're our friends, you also have authority to speak into some things that we don't often talk about because you identify with, and everyone who sees you walking down the street would identify you guys as something specific that's talked a lot about these days. Why don't you frame it for me? Explain how you see yourselves and why the things we're going to talk about today are important. I think the elephant in the room here is, you know, we identify as being African-American or or black. And when we are out in the world, that's how we're perceived, right? Uh, My voice, (laughs) my tonation probably never gives it away. My, My mannerisms don't give it away. But the question is, how does the world see a person of color, in particular as a person of color who loves the Lord and tries to serve the Lord? You're black. Yes, absolutely. And that's something that we can't escape when you walk into a room with us. I see that. 
But it's something that, because we've known you for 20 some odd years, is invisible to us, not because it was easy, but because you guys persisted in loving us enough to say, we trust you with our lives. We want to get to know you as friends. And we actually attempted to do that. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't even crossing so much the great divide between what we thought we would expect by stepping into a black family's home and getting <laughs> our kids to know your kids. This wasn't an interracial relationship. This was trying to find a real relationship. Mm-hmm. That was the key. Mm-hmm. Now, Stacey, you sound a little more black. Really? <laughs> <laughs> and you come from an East Coast a black family that I would say is like quintessential. The way you relate to each other, the way you relate on Facebook. You are the kind of people I remember that spilled into Nashville back when I was working on the Bobby Jones Gospel Show back in the 80s. Mm-hmm. Yes. The people I hung out with when I was learning the ropes and broadcasting and the work I did with BET back then. Mm-hmm being the token white guy on the network back then. (laughs) I loved everything I discovered about that culture. Mm -hmm. And there was a huge amount of generosity. And I was roped into being part of seasonal festivities and Thanksgivings and Christmas celebrations with these new friends of mine Mm -hmm. in celebrating eating foods I'd never eaten before Mm -hmm. in my country. Right. (laughs) As if it was my country to dispense with it. (laughs) Um, Well, for me, I am the youngest of six, Mm. you know, Mom and dad and my grandma, I, I used to tell everyone we were the black Brady Bunch. Mm-hmm. Um, there were six of us. It was my mom, my dad. You know, we had a dog and, you know, my grandma was Alice. Mm-hmm. I was exposed to being different at a young age. How? Well, in New York, people were on different tracks. Mm-hmm. And I was always on the honors track. Yeah. I was always the only person that looked like me in my class. Mm-hmm. In the honors courses, in the gifted and talented program, I was the only person that looked like me district-wide. And it was in my fourth grade class, I was nominated for Gifted and Talented. And my teacher, Miss Grant, she didn't want to give me the paperwork for me to go to the program. She said, oh, I don't think this program is for you. Why do you think she said that? She said that because I was black and she didn't want me to go. Mm. And she was like, no, you can't be in this program because at that time we didn't have a whole lot of language programs and looking at different areas. At that time, animation was starting to come out. It was very early on. You know, we were doing it was basically claymation. Mm -hmm. She was like, no, you're not ready for that. Even though I was amongst the top ranked students in our district. Okay. Okay, push um, back time for one second here. Okay. This is the impression of a young girl who feels like she's being stifled by someone who's in authority and power, which was a probably white teacher. Yes. Telling you you could or could not do something or trying to speak that into you. Was that really the case or just a young girl's perception? No, that was really the case. And how do you know it was really her opinion it was that really, you should not go for it? It was really the case because I was the only black applicant from my school. Mm. And it wasn't based on the criteria of those kids that were getting applications. Mm -hmm. I hit every checkbox. Two of the other girls that I'm still really good friends with that I grew up with, their applications were accepted. They were also in my class. And she turned in their applications and wouldn't even give me my application. And these girls were white. And these girls were white. How did you respond as a young girl to feel like you were being purposely shut out of opportunity? When I was like, well, why can't I do it, but they can do it? 
And she was like, oh, you're not ready. But my scores are better than their scores. Mm -hmm. I'm ranked higher than them. I've done all of the things that I'm supposed to do. Yet you're telling me that I'm not ready to do it. And it was a big to do. You know, my parents got involved. But by that time, the deadline had passed. And I was like, you know what? I'm not going to worry about it. Fifth grade rolled around and I was nominated again. This time, Miss Vashera, who was my fifth grade teacher, was like, we know what happened last year, which was a fiasco. She's like, you're going. Mm-hmm. And so the someone paper- in that group had learned something from the yes. experience. Yes. So this seems like a classic projection case where when she says you're not ready, mm-hmm. she's saying I'm not ready. And there are plenty of people, I think, even evangelical church now that whether they want to admit it verbally or not, are really not feeling ready for the kind of demands that might be put upon them personally if we decide to be proactive and go at the heart of racism and do something about it within the church. And we'll get to some more of that later in the conversation. But Aaron, I want to redirect to you now and say, you were raised in a military family, which was one of those advancement progress opportunity doors for black people since about the Second World War. Your family took advantage of that, and you've been military. Your father's been military. I assume many others in the family have. Your sons, many of them have gone through yep. that training and that career path. So tell me what it was like for you discovering who you were as an American, as a black man, as middle-class American with ambitions, and as you grew into this, your faith being an evangelical Christian in America. So listening to my wife talk about her growth and her progress, and there were some similarities In the military, what you find is that, generally speaking, when you're looking for people of color, they're enlisted. Mm -hmm. There are very few black people who are military officers. My dad really, really worked hard. I mean, I remember this. In fact, I'm remembering a time when I'm coming through school and my dad's pressing me, hey, you need to get your education. My mom's pressing me. You really got to get your education. Don't understand that at the time. But I'm, to Daisy's point, I'm in the chess club, right? I'm in the wrong things, you know, the the non-black traditional speaking. I was in the chess club. I was in the math team. I'm doing all these other things. And I'm watching my dad and I'm going, really working hard. That same kind of incident happened to him that happened to Stacy, which was, there was a point where he was up for promotion. I remember this, and I'm saying this because it was such a shaping moment for me, where he was up for promotion, and the man who was responsible for his promotion, his NCO over him, said, I'm not going to fill out your paperwork because I will not have a, you fill in the blank, in my military. Mm. He said it, and he brought it home to my dad. I remember the, the look on his face and the, you know, the anger, and I remember, here's why I'm at it. You always have to be twice as good. I never allowed myself to ever want anybody to say I was not qualified for any role. Either I was well overqualified or I wasn't looking at it, right? Mm. And that shaped my progression. I remember thinking, I'm going to school, I'm going to become an engineer. I'm a young hacker. And I did all those kind of things that, that you didn't see happen. And yet, coming out of high school, same kind of problems that Stacy faced, which was, in my household, my mom was the one who was going to church. My dad didn't always go to church, but my mom was there all the time. And every Sunday, we knew, well, you we were getting up, we were driving 30 miles wherever we were stationed, but we were going to church. And when I got to college, I kind of lost some of that, but the core was still there. Mm-hmm. So now I'm, I'm a young man, and I'm focused on what I want to do. I want to be twice as good. And I want to still do and serve. And as I'm beginning to get that relationship back, as I'm beginning to have children, I'm realizing I'm missing this relationship with the Lord. And I'm finding I'm not accepted. And that was hard, right? There was a, there was a point where... Where were you not accepted? 
Where was I not accepted? I wasn't accepted by my peers in college. I wasn't accepted by people at churches when I got to be an adult. I wasn't accepted by my peers in the industry. Coming up out of high school and then into college and working. You were doing, as I've heard your story before, a lot of nerdy white things. You were involved with- I was with doing a in- lot of geeky things. Yeah. I was doing a lot of nerdy, sciencey stuff that is not traditionally considered. Uh, in fact, honestly, it's considered negative in many, many uh, black cultures, right? right? Many environments. I say it now openly just because we're having a discussion about yeah. race. And I'm not saying that we, as white people, own these things no, by not. title or, or rights or anything. It's just what people expect. Oh, well, obviously, if you came from a black family, you're not going to be interested in dot, dot, dot. That's where the latent passive aggressive racism creeps in. We make assumptions and we don't act on them. We don't talk about them either. We don't challenge our beliefs. We just assume. Friends, before we jump back to today's interview, I just want to remind you that Compassion Radio is a communications ministry and it depends on the faithful support of you to keep bringing inspiring stories to the air each day. Our vision partners support us monthly with gifts large and small and make it possible for us to take you to the very front lines of faith. Whether you join our vision team or make a one-time gift, thank you for believing in and standing by this ministry. We're here to bring you real good news in every situation. Just call us at 1-800-868-2478 to make your gift. You can also text the word COMPASSION to 53445 to give right through your phone. Or visit our website, CompassionRadio.com. Thank you, friends, for everything you've done and what you'll do today. We love you. And now, back to the interview. Now, openly, just because we're having a discussion about yeah. race, and I'm not saying that we, as white people, own these things no, of course by not. title or, or rights or anything. It's just what people expect. Oh, well, obviously, if you came from a black family, you're not going to be interested in dot, dot, dot. That's where the latent, passive, aggressive racism creeps in. We make assumptions and we don't act on them. We don't talk about them either. We don't challenge our beliefs. We just assume. It's fine to play football when you're black. It's not fine to be on the math team. It's not fine to be in the chess club. And when you're on both, people look at you like, what's wrong with you? Like like you told me when, when you told me earlier that your passion sports-wise was to be a swimmer. Yeah. And you stayed away from that because yes. of the fear of what that would be as a burden to you. 12 years old. Everything else. Absolutely. 12 years old, becoming 13 years old. I was a swimmer for many years. I was really good at it. My father, I remember him looking at me and going, son, what are you going to do? And I'm like, I want to swim. But that's not what we do. We don't swim. We go play football. And so I quit swimming. Mm. And I went and I played football. Made my dad proud. Made all my family members what they wanted. But what I was good at, she'll tell you now, I swim like a fish. It didn't fit your ideal for who you thought you were, who you wanted to be. It didn't didn't fit fit their ideal for who I was. So you're making accommodations first to your father's expectations of you. and what. Mm -hmm. There are so many battles you have to fight in life. And the situation you guys are describing, you wanted to be achievers at the top of your fields that you ended up in. And therefore was going to require you to super... But everybody faces some of that. The the imposed part for me was, this is what you're supposed to do. And more importantly, these are things that people like you don't do. Right. Mm -hmm. And for me, like you were saying, the fields that you're in now, this is not the field that I wanted to go in. Mm. From the time I was three years old, I wanted to be a pediatric surgeon Mm. specializing in oncology. From three years old. From three years old. (laughs) You probably knew the words then. I did. (laughs) I did. Growing up, I wanted to be a doctor. 
And I couldn't wait, like when I was four, remember that Fisher-Price oh, doctor's yeah. kit? Yeah. yeah. I got one. And you could not tell me I was not a doctor, okay? <laughs> Back then there was a commercial and there was this black woman, Dr. Linda Doty White. And <laughs> she... she And she was on all of these commercials and, you know, they were talking about how you can be what you want to be. And I was like, that's who I want to be. When I was five years old, Miss Carter is one of my mom's friends. I could not find a doctor's lab coat anywhere. And I never forget. They'll go, you can just be a nurse. And I was like, excuse me, I'm a doctor. But see, that's a woman's issue as well. That that was this whole gender sexism. It was just like, no, 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 no. You're black and you're female. You can be a nurse. No, I'm going to be Dr. Linda Doty White. (laughs) I'm I'm going to be a doctor. So what happened to squash that dream? Oh, nothing had squashed it. It was just me as I got older. When I got to college and I attended different medical programs We were at Fisk University down in Nashville, Tennessee. It was great because we were right across the street from Meharry Medical College, which is the only black medical college in the country, which produces 75% of all black doctors come out of Meharry Medical College in Nashville, Tennessee. I got to rub elbows with these doctors Mm -hmm. and all different specialties. It hit me at that time when we're going through and we're looking at all these different specialties. And it hit me the first time a child dies on me. That will be the end of my career and I will be hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt. And I don't think I'm ready for a kid to die on me. And I knew enough about myself. So it turned my path, so to speak, to dealing with kids while they were alive. (laughs) So I went the path of working social work to becoming a teacher, to becoming a counselor, to now working towards principalship. So I still have that desire and love for children, but I realized at that time, and it was because I got to see the other side of the curtain and see what people really do. And I realized that if a child really did die on me, I would be devastated. And I was like, I didn't want that. So Perhaps that was a wise decision to make in your naivety at the time. But now, as I know you and heard the story for the past few years, You haven't stepped that far away from life and death issues in the position where you are now, especially facing COVID this year. Yes. You have an entire crop of problem kids. Oh, absolutely. Which is not really problem kids. It's problem families and societies that are not supporting the development of children that you are now deeply wrapped in Mm -hmm. and you're missional about it. You're putting yourself right in the shoes of Jesus and saying, what can I really do to make a transforming thing happen here? And save some lives. I know that's still your heart. And it's literally the truth now for you. Yes. I have the best job in the world. And I tell people that all the time for as much as the bureaucracy drives me nuts (laughs) with education, I would not change it for all the money in the world. My kids, when they come in to my office, they're all my babies. I don't care if they're white. I don't care if they're black. I don't care if they're rich, they're poor, they're gay, they're straight. They're mine from the time they hit that campus and the time they leave. And even when they go home, they're almost like my surrogate kids now because my kids are gone. 
and you know, I have more kids to worry about. My heart just grows and I make room for them. I know you hear from kids that have graduated and gone on. I have actually one of my kids, one of my favorite stories. I had one of my first group of kids just out of college. I was running a dropout prevention program up in New York, the Liberty Partnership Program at Troy High School. About three years ago, I get a Facebook message from one of my students. She was one of my seniors. And she was like, Miss D, I did it. I did it. And I used to call her Sister Soldier because she was like this young, (laughs) militant black woman. And and I was just like, you know, this chick is going places. Mm -hmm. I'm like there for all of it. And I would encourage her along the way. And she was like, the reason why I reach out to you and I feel so indebted to you, she says, you were the first person to believe in me. She said, you know, you were the first person that didn't laugh at me when I told you I wanted to go to college. And when I said I wanted to go to college, you jumped on it and you started connecting me with people in colleges and you took me to a college campus so I could actually see myself on college campus. I said, baby, you have no idea how much the world needs you Mm -hmm. and what you have to offer. I would be doing you a disservice if I did not encourage that and the world will lose out on so much. But when that girl called me that day, and I spoke to her not too long ago, she says, Miss D, I did it. Mm. She got her PhD. Oh, man. And she is running a nonprofit down in Atlanta right now. And she's just like, I owe so much to you for believing in me. This is a statement of faith, of course, that even those who don't have the kind of faith that we would say is grounding us, the faith that Jesus Christ has transformed us from the inside out and will continue to mm-hmm. through eternity, even those who don't have that hope and faith can still have faith in others to a degree. Mm-hmm. But how much richer it is for those of us who are seeing God doing that transforming work day by day and trusting that he's going to turn that light on in us for others, exactly. like Sister Solja, your daughter. Yeah. <laughs> And give us an ever-increasing amount of love and passion for people as we go along. I think it's probably the first spiritual lesson I want to wrap up this first program in. That you two are amazing to us as friends because God stirred in you something that was so deep. And you lived the life. You walked the walk. You did the Emmaus. You went and followed and discovered Jesus along the way and didn't stop walking. You kept looking for people to talk to, to be with, to lead and to help and to guide. And when we come back on the next program, we'll talk about Aaron's journey and his profession and where God has placed him now. I hope what you've heard from Aaron and Stacey Jackson so far has pierced your heart at least a little and given you hope for the future of the church and this country we love. There's much more to share in the days to come, so I hope you'll stick with us for the entire series. Remember that the call of Christ is not to live politically correct or politically expedient lives. The call is to live faithfully. The Jacksons are our guide when it comes to a God-fearing response to the challenge of race relations in modern times.
shortcomings weeps with loathing. There is so much to be thankful for, even in hard times. Right now, I'm very thankful for you. Your gift of time each day is a genuine treasure to us. Knowing that you're being challenged to live out your faith like never before is a wonderful encouragement to us as well. I hope you'll take time today to drop us a note through our website or by email. You can reach me directly at the following address, bramfloria at compassionradio.com. However you reach out, know that we're in this ministry and this work for you and because of you. Just call or write us today to help keep us on the air and in the field. Call 1-800-868-2478. And note our new mailing address, which is P.O. Box 77160, Corona, California, 92877. Again, that's Box 77160, Corona, California, 92877. And jump in anytime at CompassionRadio.com. We're waiting for you, friends. Hop on board.